I'm David Pluff. And I'm Steve Schmidt. And this is Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Today, we're excited to be talking to Greg Bluestein. Many of you may know him. He's a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, deeply immersed in Georgia politics for over a decade, is really plugged in to these two Senate runoff elections. And we're going to be talking to him about those races, but also talk about what's going to happen in Georgia in the two to four years to come, because Steve and I both believe that Georgia is going to be ground zero for a lot of these fissures in the Republican Party. First, David, let's catch up on the latest bullshit emanating from the White House. Steve, you and I have talked a lot about this on this program and off this program, but the pro-democracy versus pro-autocracy forces, that is the definitional battle. And those on the pro-democracy side are going to have to be, I think, willing and eager to build the biggest tent possible so that folks who disagree on a whole bunch of things but agree on the big thing are in allegiance and alignment. And it's going to take discipline and focus. You put this, I think, in a very searing way, which is the pro-democracy side cannot afford to lose a presidential election. Nope. And I agree with that. That's a lot of pressure. But what's clear is there will be a more disciplined, elegant version of Trump who believes all the things. And now we know, even though the coup was unsuccessful, we've now crossed a threshold we never thought would be crossed, which is you can attempt to stay in power in this country in the most powerful office the world's ever known. The election results are irrelevant if you've got a party for the most part that's willing to stand behind you. And we know it's going to be tested again. And I wonder what is behind this, Steve? I mean, is it just pure lust for power? Is it disdain for minorities? Like what is driving this behavior at its core? It's a good question. And it is antithetical to the American idea and ideal. I think we've seen a tremendous amount of corruption in our politics, intellectually, morally. I think a fair amount of this has to do with the poisoning of the polity from right-wing extremist media, from Fox News. But once you delegitimize your opponent severely enough as the other, if you believe it's an existential battle between good and evil, that your destruction is at hand, what seeps out of that is the idea of legitimacy within a democratic system where you're aligned around the same ideas and ideals and you compete in a virtuous circle, if you will, of loss and victory between two competing sets of ideas that are all in the end about moving the country forward through democratic means and democratic process. And I just think that we haven't talked since really the end of the Cold War about the importance and the supremacy of democracy as a political system against all of its potential competitors, because all of those potential competitors in the end have led to immense amounts of human tragedy. And look, we are in a faithless moment to that American tradition, and it is really astonishing to watch it play out, to see a fascistic movement take shape on American soil. I have a point of view. You know, I have a strong and unshakable conviction about what I saw last weekend in Washington. What I saw was right-wing extremist fascistic violence. And we have a lot of hyperbole in politics. 
But this is a time, I think, for slowing down and looking and observing and being steady about our conviction about what's clear in front of our faces and our eyes and having the wisdom and discernment to recognize the threat that's posed to all of us by it. I know it's scary, you know, when you hear Steve lay out kind of where we are and where we're going, but the mistake we could make is to assume it won't happen again. Maybe we'll get lucky and it won't, but I think we better assume it will. I asked about motivation. You know, to me, the most honest answer any Republican elected officials given in this period about why they were going along with Trump's destructive antics was that state legislator in Pennsylvania who said, if I didn't, my house would get firebombed. That was the most honest answer. And I think, sadly, that's where we are. I mean, look at Brian Kemp. We'll talk to Greg Bluestein about this. This guy has been all in on Trump, and now he's public enemy number one, not just to Trump, but his forces. So ugly times. Well, listen, let's get into it with Greg. Welcome to Battleground. Thanks for having me. Where are you, Greg? I am in Dunwoody in the northern suburbs of Atlanta. My kids were upstairs bothering me, but now they're at swim practice. So I just decided I'll hide in the basement just in case they come back in the middle of it. Wow, you guys have swim practice. I'm out in California where we don't have that. Kids can do like cross country. That's about the extent of it right now. Ours are indoor swimming and it's socially distant, but I'm glad we have it. Absolutely. Yeah, they're going nuts. So, Greg, when you look at what happened in the presidential election, Biden wins very narrowly, outperforms the two Democratic Senate candidates, outperforms most Democrats around the state. Do you get a sense, based on your reporting and the conversations you're having with the campaigns, I mean, are a lot of those voters going to do the same thing that they just did in the presidential election? Are some of them now saying, well, we got rid of Trump so I can go back home or I want to continue to send Trump a message? Like, what are you hearing? I'm just curious from the suburban swing voters. Yeah, here's the challenge for Democrats right here is those suburban swing voters because Democrats have, have flipped these suburbs like where I live, solidly blue. And the area I live in was Republican for generations since Reconstruction, really. And a Democrat now represents it in the state legislature. Actually, a guy I went to high school with, of all things. And it's happened all over Metro Atlanta where, where Democrats carved a blue streak through bedroom communities surrounding Atlanta and even did better than they should have done probably in the ex-urban communities where Republicans dominate, like Paulding County and Forsyth County and Cherokee counties, just outside of the inner suburbs. But at least some of those Biden voters who might have been Republican a few cycles ago and might have been Republican and might have, might have even voted for Trump in 16 but held their nose, they still voted down ticket Republican. They just voted for Biden at the top of the ticket. And so either winning them over, giving them a compelling case to vote for Democrats and give Joe Biden complete control of Congress and Democrats complete control of Washington is a tough sell for them. And they're not really trying to make that sell as much. And it makes sense. They're trying to get out as many of those 2.5 million core voters that showed up for them in November. They're trying to get them back out without trying to appeal to the independent fence sitters who might be torn over whether or not to vote Republican or Democrat. The messages these campaigns are pushing are clearly aimed at progressive voters, with the exception of Joe Biden coming and saying, basically, it's safe for those moderate voters to vote for Democrats because we're not going to try to radicalize the nation. We're trying to pass a voter rights act. We're trying to, you know, his top agenda items. But with the exception of that, most of the messaging is aimed clearly at the core Democratic base without trying to alienate those moderates and independents. It's a tough act to navigate, but that's where they're going. So Brian Kemp, 
and Raffensperger. These are not like Susan Collins, John McCain Republicans. Like these are conservative Republicans. They love themselves from Donald Trump. What's it been like to be down there in Georgia to have Donald Trump repeatedly, multiple times a day, question the character, the integrity, the courage of these two really conservative Trump-loving Republicans? Yeah, it's been especially hard for Republicans to see it against Governor Kemp. Secretary Raffensperger is newer to the political scene. He was kind of a backbench state lawmaker for a few terms, not well-loved among the Republican base, even after he got elected. So Republicans were easier to turn on him. And if they had their druthers, the entire Republican establishment here would probably vilify him in a heartbeat in order to keep Trump off their back. But that's not the case here because Trump has also expanded his universe of enemies in Georgia to Governor Camp and to Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who's also basically said that Trump needs to move on. But it's been real hard to stomach the Kemp part for Republicans here because the president has fewer major allies in the South who are more fervent in support of him than Governor Kemp. They campaigned together in 2018. Kemp gladly accepted the president's endorsement in the runoff against Casey Cagle that helped him lead to a a runaway route of lieutenant governor at the time. And the governor has not said a single bad word about the president at all. He's uh, refused to counter the president's direct assaults. And the president's asking him to do something he can't do, which is call a special session and illegally overturn free and fair election results. And I, I've talked to a lot of Republican insiders who basically said if he had called the special session, it would have been certainly a, a challenge in the courts and he would have certainly have lost. And some of them say, well, why didn't he just go that route? He still would have taken the L. He would have taken the loss, but it would have been at least a more palatable Republican response. Now, He's getting creamed every day by President Trump, who's called him a clown, who's called him hapless, who's called him a failed governor, and who's suggested that Doug Collins run against him. It's setting up an epic 2022 decision for the governor about whether he runs and who he runs against in the Republican primary before he faces Stacey Abrams in a likely rematch of 2018. Have you heard one person say something like this to you on the Republican side that, listen, I voted for Trump. I was for Trump, but you know he lost, and I'm doing what I'm doing now because my duty requires it. Yes, yeah, and, and I've look. I've like frankly, I've interviewed Governor Kemp just the other day, where he didn't go after Trump. He didn't say Trump lost, but he said I can't do what these people are asking me to. He called it ridiculous. He said I can't call a special session and overturn the election results just because people who are, in his words, ridiculous, want me to. It's, it's the law. It's the state constitution. It is what it is. And Jeff Duncan, our lieutenant governor, has gone a step further in just saying Trump lost. We got to move on. It's our duty to move forward as Republicans and as Georgia citizens. Has anybody sat and asked him and said, why won't you say that Trump lost? Why can't you say that? I have. I asked him point blank in terms of Governor Kemp. I asked him point blank why he can't say that President Trump lost. And he said, look, there's still legal claims. He's echoing what a lot of folks are saying, including I asked Senator Leffler the same question this morning. Why can't she say that Trump lost? Why can't she say move forward and focus on her own runoffs? And what they keep on going back to are these, you know, long shots, uh, an overstatement. These like just last ditch, desperate lawsuits that are being tossed out by the courts almost as soon as they're filed. I was reading something about conspiracy theories and one of the observations that was made on them, and it's so true, is that ultimately... The conspiracy theory devours itself, right? It's like a snake swallowing its tail. It turns back on itself always, inevitably. 
because for each seeming end of the conspiracy, right, it always has to turn back against the wall till it can't turn back anymore. And it's just a convoluted mess. And I'm trying to get a handle in Georgia. But can you give us a feel for on the ground how real that stuff is? The inner scene warfare between the Trump ist movement, any vestigial Republican. I mean, what's the deal on the ground, right? To sort through kind of fact from fiction. Is it exaggerated? Like, how crazy is the internal Republican deal down there right now? It's legit down here. It really is. And I know that we in the media can be accused of overplaying this type of stuff. But when you're at a Trump rally in Valdosta near the Florida border with thousands, more than 10,000 or so people, and it's so loud when the president introduces Senators Purdue and Leffler, you can't even hear what the crowd is chanting. And I have to find out afterwards they were chanting, fight for Trump, fight for Trump. The crowd, the audience didn't feel like those two senators who were on the ballot for control of the U.S. Senate weren't doing enough to back up Trump. That's the position that Republicans are in. They feel like anything they do to alienate the president could sink their chances of winning these runoffs. So Senator Leffler, Senator Perdue, they're trying to walk this very fine line. They're not conceding Trump's defeat. They're calling for things that were shocking just a few months ago, like calling for their fellow Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger's resignation when I've got David Perdue on the record after the June primary of talking about how great Raffensperger handled the office, right? So it's kind of bizarro world, but I understand politically why they have to do that because they've got a president who's kind of holding them hostage in that sense. They can't say nice words about Democrats. They can't tell the president to move on like other state Republican officials are doing. And you see why, because when Jeff Duncan, the lieutenant governor, goes on CNN and says that Republicans should focus on January 5th, not look behind them at the November election, he gets creamed for it on President Trump's Twitter account. And I went to that Alpharetta, which is a pretty moderate area in North Fulton County in Metro Atlanta. It was the biggest Republican rally I've attended all year that didn't feature either Vice President Pence or President Trump. Bigger than any campaign event I've been to. And I've been to a lot of campaign events for the senators. I expected maybe, I don't know, 50, 100 people, just maybe some gawkers wondering why Sidney Powell and Lynn Wood and other pro-Trump officials were going to come out and talk about his legal claims. And I was astounded that more than 1,000 people showed up and they were going crazy almost. I mean, just overjoyed when Lynn Wood goes up there and says to them to boycott the election. We're not going to go vote on January 5th in another machine made by China. You're not going to fool Georgians again. If Kelly Loeffler wants your vote, if David Perdue wants your vote, they've got to earn it. They've got to. Why would you go back and vote in another rigged election? For God's sakes, fix it. You got to fix it before we'll do it again. I got 15 text messages from Senate campaign operatives saying, why are you even there? Don't tweet what they're saying. You know, they're worried about this stuff. Is this going to basically be the shadow over Republican primary politics for a number of years? Do you think it fades out a little bit over time? What's your view? If President Trump still wants to run for election or whatever his next plan is, if he's still in the game by early 2022, Georgia will be that litmus test for how enduring his power and his coalition can be. Because not that it was hard to find, but you better believe that Republicans are snapshotting and screenshotting and keeping videos of all President Trump's attacks on Governor Kemp and, and Jeff Duncan. And I'm curious to see if you could even have some of these 
top Republican officials who decide it's not even worth it to run if Trump is still in the game by then and still actively opposing them. Because when the president goes to a crowd of thousands of Valdosta and invites Doug Collins, says, wouldn't Doug Collins make a great, great governor and gets showered with applause for saying that by the hardcore Republican base against a governor who's done nothing whatsoever to really moderate his image. I mean, he is one of the first things Governor Kemp did was pass an anti-abortion measure that was the kind of the dream of evangelicals in Georgia for a long time. So it's not like he's been some sort of squishy Republican at all here. Then you know that it's we're in this bizarre time in Georgia. And it won't just be Doug Collins. There'll be a whole host of folks who are already quietly plotting to see whether or not they're going to run for governor, secretary of state, attorney general, lieutenant governor, all these positions where they can potentially say that the office holders were not sufficiently pro-Trump at a time when he needed it. I'm just like speechless listening to it all. <laughs> I just, you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Battleground will be right back after a short break. Welcome back. We're here with Atlanta Journal-Constitution political reporter Greg Bluestein. Let me ask you this question. When you go out into the crowd after this rally, just role play with us, right? So you'll go up to someone and you'll be like, Mm -hmm. hey there. So like, what brings you out today? During the deadly pandemic, to hear the conspiracy theories. I mean, what do you what do you what do you say to these people? And then what do they say back to you? Like, why why are they there? This particular event was being held in an equestrian ring outside, so at least it was outdoors, up in the burbs. But I just talked to a bunch of people, and one of them was holding a "Stop the Steal" sign. But then he was saying that the voters were going to have faith in the electoral system. And so I was trying to say, how do you square those two things? You're saying that the election was stolen, but that voters in January 5th will have the faith to come back out and, and vote in droves, right? He didn't really have a great answer for me on that. Other voters, other, I should say, activists that I interviewed, I said, yeah, basically point blank, do you plan to vote on January 5th? And some of them said, yeah, we'll hold our nose. We don't really trust the system, but we'll still vote because we know that Republicans need to, need to win by an overwhelming margin just to win. And others, again, frankly, just said they're confused. They want to vote. They almost sounded desperate. There's one voter I interviewed, and I made her kind of a focus of a story I wrote for the Sunday paper a few weeks ago. But she wanted to vote. She was diehard Republican. She's gone to Trump rallies all over the nation. She just was in Washington for that big march. But she just said, I simply don't know how to cast my ballot. Should I trust the mail-in system? Should I trust the Dominion computers, that voting machines that Georgia uses? Pro-Trump lawyers are saying that's wrong too. How do I cast my ballot? I should have confidence in the system. I don't. As a reporter, I wanted to just tell the truth. You can trust both those systems, but they've heard so much of these lies, these falsehoods, this fantasy narrative that it seeps so deep into the subconscious that she doesn't believe me. She doesn't believe anything that she sees on in the AJC website or on the national news or whatever. She believes a completely false narrative. So, Greg, in these two runoffs, we know that Trump is the shadow, but are there going to be factors that are not national, that are not Trump-based, that we should be watching out for here in the last couple of weeks? Yeah, our polls consistently show the three biggest issues for voters are coronavirus, healthcare, and the economy. And of course, they're all kind of intertwined in Georgia. But I think coronavirus, the fate of the stimulus package that may or may not be moving through Congress pretty soon. Democrats have continued to accuse 
Republicans of downplaying the pandemic and not taking it seriously. And of course, in Georgia, specifically Leffler and Purdue of taking financial advantage of it with well-timed trades around the surges in coronavirus. And I think healthcare too. We'll have a poll out pretty soon, but I'm sure it will show that healthcare continues to be top of mind for Georgia voters. And I think Georgia voters are pretty evenly split. Most of the polls show that they do support overwhelmingly expanding the Affordable Care Act, but that's a state issue, more than a federal one, at least in Georgia. Democrats are calling for more accessible and more affordable health care, and Republicans are kind of countering by towing the party line saying that Obamacare is a disaster and needs to be repealed and replaced. When you see these candidates on the stump, when you're looking at their ads and the direct mail pieces and their social media campaigns, is that what they're talking about, the issues you just talked about? Or are they talking about democracy and they stole the White House, Pierre Leffler or, or Purdue, don't let them steal the, the Senate? What, what are you seeing in terms of the messaging? The Republicans aren't actually echoing the whole stolen narrative. The Republicans are saying there's problems with the vote, but they haven't gone so far as to say the election was stolen. They're, they're actually being pretty careful about that. But again, they're not rejecting Trump's narrative either. So they're kind of in between. But their favorite line has been the one we heard in the debates, which is that Democrats resemble or are going to usher in a socialist radical agenda that is too extreme for Georgia and that Georgia is fundamentally a conservative state and that these two candidates might be kind of trying to dress themselves up as moderates or as more pleasing to the general electorate. But then in reality, they're as radical as someone like AOC or Bernie Sanders, right? That's their underlying message. Whereas the Democrats, their underlying message is that these candidates would continue a corrupt Washington regime, not just by backing Trump, who of course was unpopular enough to lose Georgia the first time a Republican has lost Georgia since 92, but also just in general, pushing legislation and making these well-timed stock trades to benefit themselves and not Georgians. And then they are talking more specifically about a voting rights overhaul. John Lewis's name has come up in every single speech I've heard from Democrats. And one of the first things that both these candidates say that they'll push is the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which would expand voting rights and ballot access initiatives if it's passed and, and has been pending in the Senate since at least the last few months. You know, I consider Georgia, I, I don't know if this is the right way to consider it, but um, it's the capital of the New South. Mm -hmm. It's a mega state in the categories of California, Texas, New York, New Jersey, from population size, busiest international airport in the world, major league sports teams. It's a lot of headquartered global companies there. Have you talked to anyone at the business community worried about the reputation of the state from an economic development perspective as this plays out? You know, just what a circus it looks like down there with all of the anti-democracy activity that's taking place. You know, it looks like the Banana Republic of Georgia, which I suppose could happen to any state in this day and age. But any sensitivity down there to the image of the state? Because I, I think the state has a has a really strong image that's distinct in the south of the country, say, from an Alabama and a Mississippi, from stereotypes and from economic development investment and all of those things. The moniker, which is not true for Atlanta, has been the city too busy to hate. And of course, we know that's not, that's not accurate. But we've had this kind of careful alliance between 
business community and political leaders, whether they be Republican or Democrats, for years that has been really strained. So yes, it is what's worrying business leaders. They recently released a statement from the Metro Atlanta Chamber of Commerce and the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, both of them released separate statements, basically saying, let's look ahead, let's not look behind. They weren't taking sides in the Senate runoffs, but they just said, the election's over, let's move ahead, let's unite again for the best interests of Georgians. But it's tough. The last big rift we had was not so long ago when the lieutenant governor at the time nixed a push for a Delta tax break, because Delta's based in, in Atlanta, because he felt like their stance on gun control was anti-Republican. And it was a wake-up call to a lot of business leaders in Georgia that they could be punished for pushing any sort of political view. And then before that, there was a giant battle in Georgia in 2016 over religious liberty measure that gay rights groups and others saw as discriminatory. And the governor at the time, Nathan Deal, ended up vetoing it. But after all these threats of boycotts from Disney and other major, major powers who said that if you pass this, if this measure becomes a law, we won't do any business in Georgia. We'll pull productions from Georgia, all these threats. So this, it's been this ongoing tension. And especially as Republicans kind of push the narrative that Georgia is the number one place in the nation to do business because it's very generous tax schemes and all this there's subsidies and all these different inducements that make it a good place for Northeastern companies to move down to and relocate their headquarters. But when we're becoming the ground zero for misinformation and disinformation, which is where we are right now, you do risk a long-term reputational damage. And I think that's of top of mind. It hasn't stopped anything that I know of right now, but I definitely saw, and we reported on incidences in 16 and 18 and 19 of different Republican policies threatening to gum up major economic development deals that Georgia had in the works. And when Amazon was flirting with putting its second headquarters in Georgia, there are some lawmakers, including Republicans, who would have done anything for those 50,000 or so jobs that Amazon promised. And there's others who said, we don't need it. <laughs> that That's just going to help Atlanta. It's not going to help rural Georgia. And they were actively doing what they could to nix the deal, even pushing legislation they knew that Amazon would just freak out at. We're going to take a quick break. Stick around to hear more from political reporter Greg Bluestein. Welcome back to Battleground. So projecting forward a little bit, one of the things that I think is both true and concerns me is the Kemps and Duncans of the world and others like them around the country who said, actually, we need to abide by elections. That's an important part of our, maybe the most important part of our country. One of the ways they'll try and um, heal themselves of the base is say, despite the fact that I believe Trump lost, clearly there was a lot of fraud, right? And we've got to tighten up. And so you're going to see in state capitals all throughout the country in 2021 efforts to further restrict, you know, number of polling places and more restrictions around voting by mail and cutting down early voting days, et cetera. So what do you think we can look at in Georgia? I mean, do you think that's going to be an active part of the legislative session in 2021? is a whole bunch of these sort of anti-voting measures? It's going to be the defining debate of 2021 in, in Georgia. The legislative session is supposed to start days after the January 5th runoff. So we're going to go right from the runoff to lawmakers reconvening in, in Atlanta with the pandemic going on and inauguration right around the corner. And you've already seen dueling proposals from both chambers of the Republican-controlled legislature. In the Senate, Senate Republicans want to um, do a number of things, including banning drop boxes for absentee ballots and ending at-will absentee voting. Because right now, anyone can vote by mail if they want in Georgia. They want there to be 
only folks with certain conditions, only people who can't get around or have medical ailments or whatever to be able to vote by mail. Can I just say one thing about how utterly radical the Republican proposal is, right, from an ideological perspective, if you are a small C conservative? You believe in limited government, supposedly. So your proposal is that the citizen will have to interact with the government to disclose medical information, that the government then will make a determination if they can extend their franchise to vote on some politician's view of the severity of said condition. I mean, it's so radical, so crazy. It's the definition of like obsessively big, intrusive government that they are supposedly against. I mean, it just shows the philosophical corruption of the entirety of the movement and the party. But it is remarkable, you know, to consider that in all of the crises that are going on, their first priority to try to disenfranchise people from the vote in a state that's the capital of the New South, when in essence, when you boil all the bullshit out of what Trump is saying, what he's saying is, if we get rid of these said millions numbers of black votes, then we would have won the election. Very, very dangerous reputational territory for the state of Georgia economically and otherwise. It's going to be quite a battle to watch play out as we kind of go through this national regression. I'm curious, Greg, do you see QAnon Marjorie? Is she going to be a statewide candidate in Georgia and could she win? I think she will be a statewide candidate in Georgia. I don't know if it's 2022 or 2026, but this is a problem of Republicans' own making in Georgia. We all saw her coming. She ran at first for 6th District in the more moderate suburbs of Atlanta and then switched to Northwest Georgia when this seat came open that she eventually won. And she faced a whole distracted and diffracted Republican field of like six or seven other candidates. And Republicans would not speak out against her. She spent about a million dollars of her own money to get to the runoff. So a big amount of money, but not a staggering amount. And if the Republican Party in Georgia would have coalesced behind one of her opponents, it would have been a different story. But they kind of ceded the field to her and that many of them were afraid of her. And partly it was because of this whole Senate race. They were afraid that if either Leffler or Doug Collins had come out strong against her, that she would just turn around and hit them. And, and she became this kind of social media phenom with a lot of followers that lived nowhere near her district, but still had like shouting power. But every Republican I talk to acknowledges privately and some publicly that she's going to be a nightmare for them down the road. And it's not just her. This cycle has created all sorts of different Republican figures in Georgia that were fringed, that weren't involved in party politics at all. They didn't go to these Saturday morning breakfasts and all these things that these dedicated activists have done. Didn't run for local council office and work their way up the food chain. But suddenly now they're stars and now they have to be contended with years down the line from Republicans who did do all that work. Yeah, well, I think you could make the argument that QAnon Marjorie is the biggest star coming out of the 2020 elections for the Republican Party. And I assume you're going to see dozens of hundreds, hundreds of QAnon candidates running for Congress and statewide in 2022, right? All of the incentives reward insanity, right? So if the incentives are aligned to give you a cookie for being crazy, you get more crazy people. It's just as simple as that. And I guess like the fundamental requirement in a lot of these races 
you know, as you get to the edge of the cliff, is whomever the craziest person in the race is will be deemed the most qualified by the Republican primary voters, right? And I mean, you'll have variations of crazy. You'll have grades of crazy. She may look after being in Congress for a year compared to what follows her, right? We may be calling her a moderate in a year and a half. You know? <laughs> like she's moderate Q. Like, oh, no, she's a good one. They're okay. We can work with them. Compromise. You know, maybe she'd be Secretary of Defense someday. I mean, holy shit. It's unbelievable. And as we've said a lot on this show, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Yeah, there is a vacuum and there's a vacuum nationally and there's a vacuum in Georgia. And again, I would talk to senior Republican officials saying, you guys know that someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene, I wrote this in a story, so it's not like some sort of, but is going to be a nightmare for Republicans down the road, whether it be 2022, whether whatever it might be. And they know, like every, every single one says, yeah, but, but it's worth it right now because we'll help gin up the base and yada, yada, yada. And so for the short-term gain, We'll, we'll be, I think, far overwhelmed by the long-term pain that they feel because, yeah, someone like Marjorie Taylor Greene might go and primary the Secretary of State in two years or might go challenge even someone who's a solid, solid conservative who's not hated by Trump, but find some reason to go after them because they didn't do something that's impossible. Because the standard, the goal, goalposts in Georgia keep on moving. And if you're attacking faithful Republicans for doing, you know, I... Someone like Kemp, who's done everything he can be imagined for Trump, short of illegally overturning the election results, and now he's getting destroyed on it. It just doesn't make sense to me. What's fascinating is just you, you are going to be at ground zero on all this stuff, you know, over the next four years. It's going to be insanity. Eat your Wheaties. Well, Greg, this has been a, an awesome conversation. Great to have you with us today, Greg. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. We want to give all of you terrific listeners a heads up that we are taking next week off for some much-needed rest and recuperation before we hit the ground running in January to cover the runoffs, the inauguration, the first 100 days of the Biden presidency, and beyond. Thanks so much to Greg Bluestein for joining us on this episode of Battleground. For everyone listening out there, we know this has been a tough year, a hard year. We hope that our show has been a bit of an escape from the pandemic, if not from the political circus. There's a vaccine on the way, so stay safe. Happy holidays. Have a great New Year's Eve, a safe one. Thank you for listening. We are grateful, and we'll talk to you again in 2021. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jess Williams did research for this episode. Allie Rogers is our associate producer, and Christian Castro-Rossell is our executive producer.